studios of WHUPLP in Hillsboro, North Carolina. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight, Welcome to another show, everyone. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and we are at the end of a long, great weekend of training with my guest, Seth Smith, from Upstream BJJ. Seth has been down teaching seminars, and he taught seminars and private lessons at Elevate MMA this past weekend. I had a lot of fun. I know that uh, it seemed like everybody else was having a lot of fun as well. We had a great turnout for that, almost 40 people on the mats training leg locks, training all kinds of fun ground karate stuff. So we're going to talk with Seth, who has had an extensive career of competition of teaching, of training, and uh, we're going to talk to him about that, about his experience with the seminar and his training journey as well. But first, got to tell you how to get a hold of the show. If you like what you hear, please go on iTunes and leave us a review. Five-star reviews really help with the visibility of the show. You can always get in touch with the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram. Our Twitter is DWB Radio, and our Instagram is Dirty White Belt. You can also get at us using either of those hashtags as well. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Yes, Betsy. I have been reading the frequently asked questions on the U.S. Grappling website, usgrappling.com. This is a great idea for all future grapplers. So I have to tell you, some of the answers are kind of amazing. So can you give me an example? I'm so glad you asked, because here is my favorite thing, I think possibly ever written in a rules manual. In the sub-only section, they ask, what if one guy just wants to sit in the other guy's guard during a sub-only match? And the answer U.S. Grappling provides is, he's going to have to pee eventually. Speaking from personal experience, that's true. (laughs) For that, more comedy genius and a full schedule of U.S. Grappling's upcoming matches, you can go to usgrappling.com and support our friends and sponsors. So we're going to start with the uh, with the news segment today. We have a few upcoming news items. For one, I'm going to be teaching uh, a yoga class uh, combined with jiu-jitsu at Elevate MMA on April 6th. So if you want to have another night with your favorite uh, local vegan, uh, April 6th, we're going to start at about 6 p.m. Uh, it's open to everybody of all affiliations. So come by, do a little stretching. We'll do some yoga workout. We'll do a yoga warm-up. Uh, we'll roll, and then we'll do a yoga cool down. I had a lot of fun last time, so I want to thank everybody who came out last time and invite you to come out again. That's April 6th at Elevate MMA. The other thing I want to mention is our favorite tournament organization, U.S. Grappling. U.S. Grappling has another North Carolina event coming up, a two-day event, April 22nd and 23rd 
at uh, the Europa Games in Charlotte, North Carolina. So go ahead and register for that. You can save yourself some money by pre-registering online at usgrappling.com. You can also, um, it, this is also an event that has two significant things about it. First of all, there's a two-day event, one with the, uh, the adults, one with the kids, Saturday for the, 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 the adults, Sunday for the kids. And also, it's going to be part of the Europa Games, a much larger event in Charlotte. And so you can, uh, that means, unfortunately, there's a spectator fee for this one. But that also gets you access to the Europa Games and all the other really fun stuff that's happening there. So once again, uh, come out for my yoga night at Elevate MMA on April 6th. Train with Cody Malte and all those great guys. Um, come out for the U.S. Grappling event April 22nd, 23rd. That'll be at the Europa Games in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's the news. So we're going to get with my guest, Seth Smith, who just finished a seminar at Elevate MMA on the other side of this 15-second break. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. For many years, Seth Smith has been active on the competition scene. He's been teaching. He's been training. Now uh, the proprietor of Upstream BJJ in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I'm really happy to have Seth down, be able to train with him. Had a great time training with you yesterday, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I had a great time teaching the seminar yesterday, and it's been fun. Yeah, before we get into your personal jiu-jitsu journey, let's just talk about the seminar. It was really well attended. We had about 37 to 40 guys on the mat. Um, you showed some leg lock stuff. And so this is your first time at Elevate MMA, and yeah. what, what were your impressions? Well, I thought, like, first of all, aesthetically, it was just a really good-looking academy. It was really clean, just very nice-looking spot. Um, there were people from apparently all over. There were some people from Richmond that came down. There was uh, people from a lot of different gyms down here and a lot of people that I've seen on the local competition uh, scene. So I was stoked to have them there. And I got to roll with some of those guys like DeAndre Corbet was like a real fun to roll with and Andrew Bittner, um, who I never roll with before. So got to get some good rolls in and uh, Cody was super cool. And I don't know, it was just a good vibe. And it was like about three hours pretty much of just like a lot of times you, you do a seminar and like two hours in people look burnt out. But I felt like for three hours, we were able to get through it pretty painlessly. And you know, it looked like everybody was digging it. So I had a great time. Yeah, that was certainly my experience as well. And like, I think part of the reason, and I want to get your perspective on this, part of the reason that people weren't burned out is you taught leg locks as sort of a logical progression from entries to like, okay, here's how I here's how I enter the position, here's how I secure the position, here's how I transition out of the position. And so I'm wondering, it, you know, I have a sort of a two-part question, which is like, what first got you interested in leg locks as a, like, what, when did that become like a passion of yours? And how do you approach teaching leg locks in terms of reverse engineering those positions? And is it different from teaching other positions? I don't think it's different than teaching other positions. I think, you know, like any any submission position, like a triangle or arm bar, you should be able to not only submit the guy from the position, but you should be able to control your opponent from that spot. Like if I have you in a triangle, I should be able to like control how you move and your options, right? And I think it's the same. It's, it's no different when you get into a leg lock. Like you, I'm, I'm going to try to hurt your leg, but I'm also going to control you through your leg and see how I can, you know, limit your options and, and be able to respond to whatever you can give me. You know, you should be able to, like, paint people into a corner with your jujitsu. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I first started getting into leg locks just because – my first instructor in Richmond, Dave Womack, was a uh, you know really into sambo and really into leg locks. He kind of came from the old school, you know, like old, old school Richmond jiu-jitsu. Um, 
was I think you have a coffee coming for you. Ooh. But uh, old school Richmond Jiu Jitsu kind of had like a mashup of like shoot fighting and catch wrestling and you know all kinds of things like that. And I, you know, we just it was just what we did. We learned leg locks, and so I always was fascinated with them and was like going for them from an early point in my Jiu Jitsu career. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's just kind of what you need to do with anything is just go for things and have a lot of trial and error and, you know. Mm-hmm. On the topic of learning positions like that and controlling positions that are also submission positions, one of the things you showed yesterday that I thought was really important is how you can use leg locks in conjunction with passing the guard. And how yeah. you, you mentioned, like, look, you got to – like, one of the positions you, 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 uh, you taught was a setup where you go for a guard pass, but you've actually got to go for the guard pass in order to, to give the guy an option, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like a lot of people who, a lot of people misuse leg locks in that regard, and that they they have no passing at all. But then they just want to try to like hover around and then wait to just drop on a foot. And I think that's you know that doesn't work at, at a certain level. It's very easy to read that, and you know people are like, oh, this guy's just waiting for me to stick my foot out. I'm just not going to do that. And then you know then they don't really have a game. But if you have good passing, it makes people's legs come away from their body and opens things up. And, and like, if I'm truly respecting a guard pass and responding to it, then you know the leg locks come out a lot easier. So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned you got started in, in jujitsu in Richmond, uh, training with Dave Womack. I think that's a really good segue to talk about like what got you interested in jujitsu, and maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about your jujitsu journey and how you got um, from day one to upstream BJJ. Sure. Um, well. I was taking a Taoism class in college, and uh, you know it was it was just a random elective uh, that I was taking. The, the Taoism class we did like stick fighting stuff in the class. It was a college class, but the and like the teacher uh, gave us all sticks, and then like we would do these like stick fighting like template drills. And I thought it was really neat. And there was a couple people in the class who did martial arts as well, and they were kind of like traditional martial art nerds like they're just i don't know they had like kind of a dungeons and dragons feel to them ain't nothing wrong with that (laughs) and so uh anyway i was just like uh, okay so what's what's a good place to go train martial arts and they all they all pretty much agreed on this one spot it was this place called prodigy martial arts it was owned by brian crenshaw and uh it was an interesting gym because you know like most gyms nowadays like they're like a muay thai gym or they're a jiu-jitsu gym or mma but this was like a martial arts school that had like several different martial arts. Like they had Jeet Kune Do classes, they had knife and stick fighting classes, they had Kung Fu classes, Jiu Jitsu classes, Muay Thai. And so I basically, you know, like I, I took those people's advice and I went to that school and I started trying everything out and uh, tried all of those classes out. And Jiu Jitsu was the most fun and it just kind of resonated with me the most. So at that point, like I didn't care what martial art I did. Like I would have you know, just as easily ended up doing Kung Fu or something like that. But I just really liked jujitsu and, and I had watched the UFC and Horse Gracie and knew that was cool. So I just kind of fell in love with it. And very quickly it became just what I was doing. I was like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to do jujitsu. Mm-hmm. So in in that time, like after you fell in love with jujitsu, I'm wondering where the vision to open a school came. Was this something that you were like, I want to teach martial arts from day one? Or was it something that, that, that you're like, maybe once I'm done competing or like, how, did you always know? And if you didn't always know, what made you want to open a school? Well, it was kind of, it seemed like if I'm going to do this full time with my life, like especially back, I started in 2001. So like... It was kind of like the only way you were going to be able to do this full time because back then, like, you couldn't really. I mean, it would be pretty hard to make a living competing. 
you know, back in 2001 jujitsu world. But, uh, you know, you could eventually open up a school and have students and that could facilitate training all the time. So uh, pretty early on, I started, you know, helping my instructor out coaching. I mean, it, you know, before I was even comfortable with it, you know, like I was like teaching classes and, you know, just doing my best. I mean, looking back now, I'm like, man, I was terrible, but, <laughs> but you know, whatever I was, I was, I was doing it. And I, I had my own gym, uh, actually in Richmond before I left Richmond, uh, for a year. And not only was I probably not ready to be teaching, but I also wasn't a good business person. And, uh, it kind of tanked and I'm glad it did, but it was kind of painful at the time. But, you know, it was just, uh, I think pretty early on, like, I kind of knew, like, this is what I want to do in my life, and i probably going to be teaching a lot as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And so now you're back in Richmond at Upstream, and I'm wondering, like, you talk a little bit about the process of learning to teach, because those are different skills, right? Absolutely. And so, like, what do you think has aided your development as a teacher? Just a lot of experience, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, trial and error, how to you know, you, you have this thing that you have in your head, you want to put in somebody else's and, you know, it's just, how am I going to get them to do that? And, uh, over the years, it's just been a lot of like understanding, like you got to do a lot of like repetition. I mean, it's just simple things, right. But it's like, you can't just like, be like okay, we did this today and tomorrow we're going to do this. It's like, we did this today, but then tomorrow we'll have like 80% new people in the class who weren't here the day before. And we got to like do this for like a couple of weeks. And then we just got to like add on to it. And I think like, you know, learning things like in the beginning, students don't need like too many details. They just need to find like the most important uh, aspects of a technique. And like, like when you're doing an arm bar, like not the leg that goes over their head, but the other leg needs to get high up in the armpit, you know, and like, you know, simple things like that. And like just lots of repetition and kind of slowly guiding people towards moving the way you want them to move. And over time, you just add more detail, more layers of nuance and you know, you can kind of refine people, but at first it's just the broad brushstrokes. You just need people, you know, moving their bodies like jujitsu. And even if they don't understand what they're doing, just do it, just do it a million times. And eventually like you'll have this like frame of reference that like we can look back on and be like, okay, so you know, this thing we always do, this is why we do it and clean it up. And then like people just get, you know, like I said, more and more refined. So Mm -hmm. to continue in that vein. So like you just described like I think a really successful teaching approach for for younger students for like the new folks and so I'm wondering when you see a student that has achieved a certain level of proficiency like maybe they've been training a year maybe two maybe they've got a blue belt what do you think the most common training mistakes either your students or other folks that you see people making that you're like man I wish if yeah I wish they would do this differently or when I was at that point in my career I wish I had done that differently I think like taking ownership of your jiu-jitsu and just having a good process you know like it's learning jiu-jitsu is a process doing jiu-jitsu is a process you know uh i think you need to comment a lot you need to take it seriously you need to like take notes and pay attention to detail and then just you need to drill on your own and get the muscle memory to make it yours and i I see arrogance and ego getting in people's way the most. And everybody says, no, no ego, I don't have an ego. But it's like, yeah, you do. You just don't know it. It's like like sometimes people are too quick to say, yeah, I got it. You know, it's like, no, you don't. Like, that's why I'm like telling you, like, just, you know, you need to like listen to me. You're not hearing me. Like, you need to like do this more. You need to pay attention to this more. Like, 
I don't know. I, I think like people sometimes are too quick to say they got it when they don't, and I, they think they don't need to drill it as much as they need to. But anything I've been able to do successfully or effectively, I felt is a thing that I put a lot of time into drilling. And because I've done it so many times, when things are you know chaotic in a match, like I can find that thing because my body knows how to do it, and it's only going to come from you know just putting in the work. And so. Like, I don't, I don't think it's that hard to get, like, the pro, it's, it's a lot of work, but I don't think it's that, like, complicated to get good at jiu-jitsu. Just pay attention, take notes, do the drills, get a lot of reps in, drilling stuff, train a lot. And, you know, like, also, like, I think, like, how people drill jiu-jitsu is important because, like, you know, it's, like, not a static thing. So I think people need to, like, have a little bit of, like, aliveness to their drilling, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, I think they need to be like sometimes you see people drilling and like it looks like the guy who's being drilled on is like a robot just with his arms dangling in a way that's like you would never do your opponent would never be in that state while you're grappling. So it's like learning to kind of like die. You're not resisting your opponent, but you're like simulating real jujitsu movement. You know, both people are interacting and it, it kind of flows together. So I think, you know, it's just how people drill and, and putting in the time. Yeah, you know, to react to that a second, like, I really think there's an art to being a good drilling partner. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and one of the things that you described that, that really resonates with me is, you know, the people that take notes, that aren't afraid to ask to see things one more time, I think are often either, if not the most successful, the most people that, that get their most out of their own potential. Like Kim Rice, who we were talking about, my teammate, won the Worlds at Blue Belt. One of the reasons I think she got so good so fast is she would always ask to see the technique one more time. She would always put in the extra drilling. And so even among people that are more physically advantaged, I think like the ego can really, really hold you back. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A lot, everybody wants to be that guy who gets it the first time. And, you know, I don't need any extra help. I was a prodigy. It's like, no, you, you know, you just pretend even if you are pretend you're not, you know, just ask to see it again. Ask to have it done on you so you can feel how it's supposed to feel. That's a lot, you know, that goes into feeling a technique and, you know, just be humble, you know, just be open to learning new stuff and, you know, just like you said, not be the guy who's too quick to say you got it, but ask to see it multiple times and be sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to continue in that vein, and then later I want to talk a little bit about your experience with competition and how you feel about jiu-jitsu competition, but to continue with the teaching thing for a moment, do you have particular favorite drills, either solo or dual drills like that you have your folks do or that you feel like were particularly helpful for you? Um I, I yes, uh, I have like movement drills from different positions. I mean, you know, each position is going to have its own kind of drill. But I, I like like repeating drills a lot. I like uh, things where it's like we go through transitions that can like like where it's like I like sweep you, transition to mount, you escape the mount, come back up in the sweeping position, and like you know, it just kind of keeps rotating. And uh, yeah, I, I recently I've been doing like a lot like. You know, sometimes sometimes I have to do the warm up where like the guys jog around the room and do like all the push ups and stuff like that because I feel like different people need different stuff. Like some people come into jujitsu and they're like totally out of shape and like it's like they need some conditioning, you know, like that's what that guy needs. Some people they on their own, like on their own time outside of jujitsu, they're like, you know, doing CrossFit or something and they're getting super in shape so they don't really need that as much they're more like they need the technical jujitsu side but like i feel like you need something for everybody but i, I like doing like warm-ups where we just do like a bunch of arm bars you know like two minutes you doing arm bars two minutes you doing arm bars two minutes you doing triangles two minutes you doing triangles you know two minutes like just like taking the back like doing like a back taking motion and then just let them go do it again and like doing it for time and each person like going over like things that i think are like 
you know, like you have to know these things. Like these are like your fundamental basic things that you need to learn. And, you know, like I think it's like fun to warm up with that. And you have, you know, like a lot of them, but, you know, maybe we'll do like three a day. And, you know, I've seen like people take to like, like, you know, if they know nothing else, they've been doing this armbar drill for two minutes before every single class for like the last like three weeks in a month. You'll see that person with a pretty like snappy armbar because they've done that movement so many times. And then it's like I said, you can come back later and add a lot more layers of detail to that armbar to that person. And then they get that quicker if they've never seen an armbar before. And you give them like this long 10 minute detailed, you know, this is how our bars work. It's like they'll be like, OK, I get it. I can't do it. You know, my body just hasn't done it enough times. So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned something that that I think is absolutely true, which is like different people have different needs. Different people are in jujitsu for different goals and different reasons. Some folks want to defend themselves. Some folks just want to get in shape. Some folks want community. For most of us, it's like some combination of those. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, do you like? Do you think it's important for everybody to compete at least once? Um, and do you encourage your students to compete? And where do you think the role of competition is in a healthy in the healthy process of learning jujitsu for the average person? I think everybody sh- should compete. Um, I think you learn so much from it. Uh, you you learn more about yourself. You like you you have the jujitsu that you're comfortable with, right? Like you have the you come to class, you roll with your friends, you see your buddy. You always get a couple rolls with like the same people. Um, you can become very comfortable there, uh, but you know if like the idea of competing kind of is like unnerving to you, then I say you should jump. You should do it. You should just get in there and try it because ultimately, I mean, yeah, like you could get hurt, but I've seen people get hurt in training too. Like we're doing a combat sport, so you kind of got to get over that. But it's just more like, you know, the nerves. And I think like going out there, like the first time I competed, I think I had kind of tunnel vision and I was like real like, you know, kind of nervous about it. I'd been training for six months and I think I got like way too into like, I got to do, do, you know, good job. I don't want to like let my coach down. I don't want to like look like a fool. And it's like, you're a white belt. No one cares. No one knows who you are. And you know, this is at some really small tournament and ultimately this doesn't matter. Uh, but you know how I was looking at it at the time, it was just like, you know, I was, I was way too nervous about it, but I got in there and I did it. And, um, you know, I lost my first match, just got smoked and, uh, then I was like, all right, I want to do it again. And then, like, the next tournament I did, like, I won a match, and then I lost my second match. But it was like, all right, well, that's better than the last time. And then just getting in there and, like, getting more comfortable competing until it just became a thing that I did. And, um, you know, you get better at competing. And then it's like if you like, – I am really annoyed at the whole self-defense aspect of jiu-jitsu being, like, the separate thing. I think, like, you think about, like – levels of intensity and like unsuredness like i don't think that's a word but i just used it uh but like you know like you if you're if you want to train for the street you want to train for a fight in the street then i think like getting closer to that direction is doing a jujitsu tournament it's like first i roll with people that's like simulating combat in my gym then like you know like how about i go to a tournament where i don't know the other guy and they don't care like about my well-being they want to win and they're going to come at me as hard as they can and it's like oh you want to go a little further go towards the mma fight and then if you want to get crazy do some weapon stuff you know but like i don't like i think like competition is getting like you know anything that's going in the direction of making what you're doing more intense and more like combat oriented is going to get you ready for self-defense and it's like no, like self-defense is not like just, you know, I grab your neck and then you do a thing to get out of it and then that's it. Like 
you can drill that, but then like if someone's really trying to like pin you against a wall and do something horrible to you, like that's nerve wracking. That's not like, you know, you're not going to simulate that in, in the class with your buddies who you're familiar with, mm-hmm. you know? So I think like getting used to the feel of someone like really trying to wreck you like in a tournament is like better. I think that gets you closer to that experience. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. So as you've competed at the highest levels, and you mentioned, you know, starting out, you know, you went to this random local tournament and, uh, and, and, and such, and I'm wondering, along the process of your own competition journey, did competition nerves ever go away for you, or did they diminish, or was it always, like, how, what's I think your... they just changed. I, I always get nervous before I compete, but now I'm comfortable with getting nervous, which is, like, how I put it. It's like, I get nervous, and then I say to myself, this is okay, like, I've been here before, I always get nervous. But I know through experience that I'm going to be okay and I'm going to be able to like do my thing. But sure, like, you know, you always start having those like creeping doubts and you just have to tell yourself like I, I, I do a lot of like internal mental coaching. I just tell myself, shut up. Like, it's going to be fine. You know, just go out there, do it, have fun. And then it's like, you know, it ends up being fine and I end up having fun usually, you know. So I think it's just like getting used to like feeling those nerves and feeling that voice and then not freaking out about it. And like, for me, it's like kind of forgiving myself for being nervous, you know, like I could have an ego about it and be like, man, I don't get nervous, but then I am. And then I start like trying to cover this thing up that's actually happening and internally. And it's like, no, it's like, let it out. Like just, you know, it's okay. Like it's okay to be nervous, go out there and, you know, perform. And I think it's also like focusing on the things that you can control. Like I used to like, kind of like be sizing up the people in my bracket and be like, man, that guy looks pretty strong hope he's not in my division or something like that, you know, but it's like, no, it's like, you can't control who you're going to fight. Like you just have to like have a positive accepting attitude about what you're about to do. Like, yeah, that's a strong super Jack dude. who looks really aggressive. Okay. That's awesome. I get to like try my jujitsu against a strong super jacked aggressive dude. Like this is like what jujitsu is about. This is an opportunity, you know? So it's like being like excited about it and like positive and embracing like Sometimes you see people competing and it looks like they don't want to be there. Like they're in the middle of the match and like it's, you know, rough and it's like the guys like kicking their butt and they're just like, you, know, you can see on their face, like they mentally checked out. They don't want to be there. And I think it's like embracing the, the war of it. You know what I mean? Like embracing the fight of it and just saying like, yeah, like I'm here, I'm in the cut of this fight and I'm going to keep pushing forward and keep looking for opportunities to win. And sometimes it goes your way. Sometimes it doesn't. But I think like getting into that like groove where you're like, you know, you're always looking to press forward no matter what is, is you know, mm-hmm. something that I've taken away from jiu-jitsu and feel like I've benefited from. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to lift up out of that is the notion of process. And you talk about how, like, you know, hey, I'm at, you know, you Dave Camarillo says crave the battle, not the glory. Or it's like, hey, you know, I'm out here and I might win or I might lose, but I know that I will learn a lot. I know I will improve my skills. I know I'll have this experience against having a super jack dude who's aggressive try to crush my face. And, yeah. and, and th- these are things that we learn from. And so in terms of your own competition career, I have a two-part question, and maybe the answers overlap or maybe they don't, which is, what are your favorite competition matches you've ever had, and who are some of the toughest people that you can remember competing against? And maybe there's some overlap there, or maybe the answers are separate. Um, 
I've competed for a long time, um, and you know, I spent a long time like kind of doing some of the smaller tournaments. Uh, my my favorite competition experience um, was going to the pans and entering. It was just brown belt masters division 2000 i think it was like 2009 or 2000 no i think it was like 2011 actually mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but uh, i got silver but up until that point i had never medaled at an ibjjf tournament and i'd gone to a bunch of them and like lost first round and it was really like frustrating because like i would do well at the local tournaments and then like i would lose like my first match whenever i'd go to these ibjjf matches and it was always like a close match but it wasn't like i would just go out there and get smoked but i would like lose by an advantage or something it became really frustrating and then, like, that was a tournament where I was able to break through, and uh, I won four matches, and then my, my finals match, I was winning it, and it was against this guy, Ben Solomon, and uh, everybody told me he had, like, a real dangerous, like, gee choke game, like, collar choke, loop choke kind of game, and uh, I was winning the match. I don't remember exactly what the score was, but I had passed his guard, had him in an arm triangle, he got out of it. And then with like a minute left in the match, he got his guard back, and then he put me in a really deep collar choke and, and tapped me out. It was really, really frustrating, but at least like feeling like, you know, I've done all these tournaments and lost a whole bunch of times, and this has been really frustrating, and now finally I'm in the finals, you know, like I've won a bunch of matches, like having that feeling of like, this is like my time to break through, I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, had a few really fun matches at ADCC trials um had a match with Rolly Delgado that was really fun um which I was able to win what he was a really tough opponent and you know dangerous footlock guy um and uh Alberto Crane was another one that I was you know had a really fun match with and it was you know pretty aggressive match it went into like you know a couple of overtimes I was able to come out on top but uh that was like really you know, special to me because I respect Alberto a whole lot. And, um, you know, he had been around the jiu-jitsu scene as a black belt pretty much my whole career and, you know, known of him competing in Brazil and doing really well. So I was I was really stoked about that win um, and just the chance to go out and compete against him. And uh, that's, that's one of the fun things about going to those trials is you get to, you know, have matches against really good people. So mm-hmm. you mentioned arm triangles and like I'm interested because obviously your jujitsu is very well rounded. You've been doing this a long time, but there are certain techniques that you're known for among them, the foot locks, but you're also really well known for your arm triangles. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, do you feel like this is something you, the techniques that you feel are your A-game techniques, maybe those are the examples. Do you feel like those are things that you consciously selected like, hey, I want to get really good at these things, no. or it's just, it's just something that, that seemed to make sense to you? Like, yeah, I, I think it just kind of, like, naturally... Like, I started doing leg drag passing a long time ago, and it ended up with people being on their side all the time. So I started seeing the arm triangle because of the way I was passing, and then, you know, because I was, like, ending up in that spot all the time, it became, like, a natural progression. And, like, the whole leg lock game was just something that, like... I was always in a culture of, you know, some jiu-jitsu gyms are really like, you know, they look down on people training that kind of stuff, or at least they used to. Now you're, now you're seeing it like pop up everywhere. Like I remember when it came to leg locks, like on the East Coast scene, like there was only a handful of people that were really good at them. Like Ryan Hall, I went for him, uh, Rick McCauley, uh, Joe Lozon. Like there was only like a few people who I thought were like, okay, that's like a good leg lock dude. And now, like, you go to these, like, finishers tournaments or EBIs, and it's just you see leg locks popping up all the time with so many people that are good at it and so much information out there for people to train. Um, But, like, I was, you know, my coach was, like, always getting us to train them. And then when I went to Lloyd's, like, he was really big in the leg locks. And then Ryan Hall and I, like, trained as training partners together for a really long time, always working on leg locks. I would show him what I knew, and then he'd come up with something new. And, you know, so, like, I've always kind of – 
just been around that scene and and jujitsu. Um, but as far as like other aspects of my game, I mean, it's just a result of training with Ryan, learning stuff from him. A lot of the people that we've brought in uh, doing seminars over the years, like Marilla Santana and Jake McKenzie, and um, yeah, so you know, that's just I guess how it became. I I don't feel like I was ever like I'm gonna learn Spider Guard and get good at Spider Guard. Like I would be like, okay, I want to know that because you know I need to know how that works, but. I feel like my game just kind of organically would go in different directions. So, you mentioned Marillo Santana, and he's a guy that both as a competitor as an inst- and as an instructor, I think is somebody that not enough people know about in terms of yeah. how amazing that dude is. It's like all the guys who are super good, like the top dudes, know who he is, but there's a lot of people who don't know who he is, and he's incredible. He's he's probably the most skilled uh, jujitsu athlete I've ever trained with. Wow. Well, that answers one of my other questions, which is, uh, you know, uh, but I, but I want to give you the opportunity to mention a couple others. Like, who among your training partners, who do you think, either through technique or through toughness or just, like, who among your training partners over the years do you feel like has helped you most? Um, Ryan Hall, the most. Um, and beyond him, uh, like, so a lot of my half-guard game has been influenced by Jake McKenzie. Uh, Jake McKenzie, I think, lives now in Singapore. Um, but, or... Um, yeah, I think it's Singapore. Uh, a lot of jiu-jitsu people are moving out that and way. Michelle Nicolini. Yeah, right. right. Um, but uh, he he's a he's incredibly talented, really skilled uh, half guard. You know, good at like a lot of things. Really good at close guard too. But like a, a lot of his half guard game has influenced my jiu-jitsu a lot. Um, Felipe Costa has helped me a lot with a lot of you know like my half guard game, not the deep half guard game, but just kind of outside half guard game. Um, a lot of the Barambolo stuff and even leg lock stuff I've learned from Marilla Santana. Um, so it, it, a lot of these, uh, Bruno Frazado has helped me out a lot too. Uh, learned a lot of things from him over the years. So I, you know, I've been able to train with some good people and like each one of them has given me something that I've been able to add to my game. Mm-hmm. So to return to competition briefly, and and one thing that, that you know I wanted to ask you about was you had, you had hip surgery yeah. a few years ago. I'm trying to figure out how I want to ask this. I, a lot of my friends are currently recovering from injuries. Sure. And so I'm wondering what advice would you have? And like a lot of these people are people that are used to being physically active, right? They're people that are used to training jiu-jitsu, used to lifting, used to running, whatever. And now suddenly they can't do those things. As somebody who had a surgery for which there was significant recovery, what advice would you have for those people, especially if they're kind of itching to do things? Well, I would say this, like... Um so I've had a few different injuries. Like I've had shoulder surgery, hip surgery, hernia surgery, uh, a few different things from jiu-jitsu. And um, like for me, like I, I had hip surgery and like I was telling you earlier, um, I could have gotten my hip surgery well before I did, but I put it off because I was like, I want to do these competitions and I put it off for over a year. And then I finally bit the bullet and did it. And by the time that I got the surgery, a lot of the cartilage in my hip was too chewed up to repair and they had to cut it out. And so now I have lasting effects from that. And, you know, my hip is never going to be 100% of what it used to be. You know, it's still like I can still do jujitsu, but like there are things like I can't go on long walks. Like people are like, yeah, let's go on a five mile hike. Five mile hike. It's like, well, I might get like two miles into that and then my hip starts hurting and then it's like somebody needs to carry me out. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean it's not like that bad, but it'll be like really painful and then it's like it's just going to be a miserable time. So like I'm like, all right, no hikes. You know, some days I have good days and I can walk like really far. Some days I can't. But it's like I think it's because I put that surgery off and I say it's like if you have a thing that you need surgery for, it's probably good just to go ahead and do it. Now, if it's something that's going to permanently change you, like, 
you know, I could probably go get like a artificial hip now, but once I do it, there's no going back. So I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put off, you know, doing that until my hip just completely doesn't work anymore. And then hopefully, you know, at the point where I have to do it, like science is good enough that I get, you know, the best bang for my buck. Um, but I think people shouldn't put off, like if you have a torn shoulder or a torn hip and you know that, like you should go get that fixed, get over the, the surgery. And it's like, you get over stuff fast, you know, but it's like, I see it as like, okay, like, you know, you don't want to do it, but it's like, look at your whole jujitsu career. Look at like how long you want to be involved in this and then say like, okay, like if you want to be doing jujitsu for the next 20 years, then you probably should do this now and not have this like lingering problem that you're going to have for forever now because you put that off. Um, so I feel like I should have gotten my hip surgery quicker. And, you know, if you have gotten a surgery and you're trying to get back into things, you just got to take it slow and listen to your, you know, listen to your physical therapist. And like, like I said, just think of the long-term thing. Like if you jump back into it too quick and you tear it again, or it doesn't recover a hundred percent, then where are you at? You know, you're, 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 you're left at a disadvantage forever, you know, and you just have to have to deal with it. Like I did everything right with my shoulder when I had shoulder surgery and they put it back a hundred percent. And now it's like, I can't tell that I had a surgery. Like I feel a hundred percent from my shoulder, but it's like, it's not the same for the hip. So mm-hmm. do you do other physical activities outside of jujitsu either that are designed to sort of keep your body healthy or, or just things that you enjoy? Like, do you do yoga or anything like that? No, uh, I, I, I need to, like, I would like to do yoga, but yoga in Richmond is kind of expensive. So if I could get like some kind of yoga situation where like I get like a yoga teacher to teach yoga in my gym and I get to like take free classes or something like that, I'd be stoked about it. But yeah, I mean, it's like I'm teaching jujitsu, but I don't have a lot of money either. So, you know, it's like, uh, I'll just, you know, stretch on my own. But yeah, maybe one day I can get on the DDP yoga. <laughs> Actually, one of my one of my one of my friends and coworkers does the DDP yoga. And a lot of it. people do. They bang. love it. Feel the bang. Yeah, yeah. I want to feel the bang. Uh, you know, in all, in all seriousness, like you know, I'm a, anyway. I'm a big believer in yoga, and we can talk more about that offline. So, fusing the two topics, like teaching and and training, like, do you feel like you've learned more jujitsu from teaching or from training? Uh, I would say I, I learn a lot teaching and a lot is like, sometimes like I've had a move taught to me. So it was like, I start teaching it like it was taught to me, but then like, I'll start to realize like, this isn't what I do. Like I was taught this, but I don't do this. Like I do, I do this differently. And then I have to like, like do it a few times and pay attention to what I'm doing. And then I realize like, Oh, I do this thing intuitively, but I, you know, I just didn't really realize I was doing it, but this little detail I can pass on. And, you know, now it's changed the way that I teach it and becomes like over the years of just teaching for a long time, it's become the things that I teach. I've kind of owned a little more. Like, I I feel like I, it's like, this is, I'm going to teach you how I do it. And I like, teach them kind of like how I was taught and then the adjustments I made and then maybe let them see if they have to, change it for themselves. I mean, people have different body types and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot from teaching, but definitely from training too. And just, you know, training and figuring out stuff on my own or, you know, learning from awesome, awesome dudes mm-hmm. and dudettes. <laughs> so as we record this, you are, uh, you are wearing an upstream BJJ shirt with the sloth logo on it. Mm-hmm. And so, and which looks dope by the way. Thank you. Uh, and of course. And so I have to ask an open-ended question, which is why sloths? I was told by a friend a long time ago that I looked like a sloth and I was like, what is a sloth? And then I started looking up sloths and I 
just thought they were the coolest creature in the world. So I was like, all right, well, like let's know all there is to know about sloths. And there's lots of different types of sloths and there's two toed and three toed. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot about them. I find them to be a very interesting creature and they look pretty rad. And I got to feed some sloths one time. That was pretty fun. And, uh, yeah, so I just like that animal a lot. I feel like I identify with them. I think we could talk about a lot of things and relate. So, um, Two two part questions. So first of all, who did the sloth art for you? You were telling me that you you have a connection with a graffiti artist or or something like that. I want you to be able to tell that story to the listeners. Yeah. So uh, my my friend Brad Bacon uh, drew this shirt, and Brad Bacon is a really incredible artist. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Brad Bacon Art, and he's just a uh, he's been in Richmond for a really long time. We've been friends since middle school. But he's a really good muralist. Uh, he does sign painting for a lot of the local businesses in Richmond. Um, you can see his if you go to Richmond, you'll see his art all over the place, whether you know it or not. Like you'll just drive by restaurants and the signs were all painted, or there'd be a big mural outside that he did, and uh, so he designed this shirt for me. So, is there a particular sloth that you identify with? Two toed, three toed? I don't know a lot about sloths. Uh, I would definitely say the three toads, uh, but uh, I don't know. I guess I identify with them both. The, the two toed ones are a little more cranky, and they can. Uh, if you go to pick them up, they might bite you. And people don't realize, but uh, two-toed sloths have some really gnarly fangs. That uh, when I got to, when I fed sloths, I got to feed the two-toed kind, and they when they open their mouth, they it looks like one of those like staple removers. Like they have like fangs on the bottom and fangs on the top, and they kind of just fit together like perfectly. And if you got bit by one of those, it'd be really nasty. But sometimes they don't want to get picked up, and they're cranky. Sometimes I'm that way. And then you know the three-toed ones, like you can pretty much just pick up any time and just play with them, and they're pretty harmless. So. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm, they're both pretty cool. Yeah, I'm way more like a three-toed sloth, although I think of myself more as like an eye-eye, one of those lemurs that only comes out at night. And those things are so rotate. scary looking. They look like Nosferatu yeah. of the animal world. But a cuddly Nosferatu. Yeah, that, that one middle finger claw that like sticks out twice as long as all the other ones, like that finger is so weird. Yeah, and you know they can rotate it 180 degrees. They can rotate their middle fingers 180 degrees. That's how they eat termites. It's like they stick it into the hole in the woods, and they. It's and like they a little rotor rooter. Pretty much, pretty much. Nature is awesome. Um, so yeah, I figure we can get, like we, we can go down the road of what are some, do you have do you have other favorite creatures you want to talk about before we segue from this topic? <laughs> I like a lot of creatures. I really I'm really fascinated in like small venomous creatures like the blue ringed octopus. You ever heard of that thing? Never have. It's a uh, octopus that lives in Australia where everything that will kill you is and uh it's the size of like a plum. You know, they're just really small little creatures that you can barely see. They can change colors and blend in with their surroundings and if you step on one, it like if you get bit by one you have like 30 minutes till you're dead and there's no anti-venom for it. Their, their venom is so complex they haven't figured out how to make an anti-venom. So you're just pretty much toast. So you just so. got to figure out how you want to spend that 30 Shout minutes. Shout out the Blue Ring Octopus. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm also, I'm a big fan. Like One of my friends when I was living in Okinawa got stung by a box jellyfish, almost died. Those things are crazy. Just melt your flesh off, right? Yeah, yeah no, totally. He had like red lines and stuff all over him. It was, it was wild. Um, yeah, nature is incredible, and if the ocean wants to kill you, it can kill you. I feel like, like if you ever want to be like a super villain, you need like some kind of big tank of one of these animals, you know, to throw your your enemies in. Like all all super villains should have like a big like 
tank of blue ringed octopus or like box jellyfish. It's like I'll throw you to the fish, you know. Dude, I love this. Me, me, and me and Betsy actually like. Unfortunately, we weren't able to successfully maintain this aquarium, but we had a jellyfish aquarium, which is one of my one of the coolest things I've ever had, and I would like to do that again because jellyfish are awesome. Whether it's they really hard to have not. a jellyfish aquarium there, right? Like because yeah, they can get sucked up in the pumps or something. That that that's what happened to a couple of them. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> it's really and it, yeah. Anyway, we can. <laughs> so so sorry, sorry, animal rights folks. <laughs> I'm really deeply sorry. Um, so so to transition a bit away to, for, to other like sort of jujitsu culture stuff, a lot of folks know you. You mentioned that you trained with Ryan Hall for many years, and a lot of folks know you as the UK from Ryan's from a lot of Ryan's uh, instructional DVDs. And I'm just wondering, um, when when Ryan gets off on a rant, how difficult is it to keep a straight face? <laughs> I mean, I I don't think I do keep a straight face. <laughs> I think if you watch those videos, you'll see a lot of me making different faces. And I've been told by a lot of people that that is one of their favorite parts to watch is during the instructional video, just watching me. And uh, all I could say is, it you know, I love all the jiu-jitsu that I've learned from Ryan, but going and filming those DVDs has always been pretty painful because you're just in this room, you know, you're in this room and, like, you're in there for, like, eight hours being drilled on and, like, being on your knees or just, you know, smelling farts. And it's just, you know, <laughs> it just stinks. And it's like having to reshoot stuff and I don't know. It's, it's, it's you know, it's not the most fun process, but uh, it's good. You know, it's ended up made some good, good videos, but, yeah, the actual shooting of them can be... You know, not the best. Speaking from everyone, as for everyone who has learned from a lot of those DVDs, and boy, do I count myself among that number. Thank you for your sacrifice, because you're welcome. Yeah, no, I know that. That's, that had to be tough. So, uh, is there? Would you ever do a Seth Smith instructional DVD? Yeah, like, absolutely. I'd be totally game for that. And I, I like the idea of like doing something. And I haven't done this yet, but I, I don't have really good video editing skills. It's something I need to get better at. But. uh I, I would love to shoot something and then just put it out for free and then let people donate like what they, you know, if you benefited from this, just kick me a dollar. Cause you know how it is. Like a lot of people, uh, they pirate stuff anyway and you put out a DVD and there's going to be all these people, you know, p torrenting it. And I just say, okay, let's skip all that. And just, you know, Riley Bodycomb did that. He kind of open sourced, uh, some of his, his stuff. And I think that's a cool way to do it. So if I were to ever, Put out and I mean, yeah. If you want to pay me a whole bunch of money, yeah, we can just make a DVD. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, you could. I, I think it would also be a cool project to just open source it and you know just let people donate. Yeah, I do think that donation kind of model is an interesting business model, and I like in in my ideal world, everybody would make a living wage for what they for what they do, especially martial arts instructors. But like, I do think the idea of you know just kick a couple bucks because even if people wouldn't buy the DVD necessarily, it's like okay, well, I watched this and I learned some things from it, and a lot of bloggers have had success with that with tip jars and things like that. Yeah, and there's a lot of like people in other countries. Like you, I've gotten to travel to Europe and teach jujitsu out there, and you meet a lot of people who have seen your DVDs or. You know they've they've benefited from something you did and put out a long time ago, and I think that's really cool. And mm -hmm. I don't want somebody in some you know some person in some other country who can't afford like a hundred dollar DVD to not be able to see it. Like mm -hmm. just put it out there, you know. And if you can pay, pay for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. Yeah, so maybe that can be a collaborative project at some point. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. All right, dude, we're breaking news here, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that would be big fun, and, uh, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners would learn a lot from it as well. So, like, I w uh, this is sort of a, a sort of related topic. I want to talk about goals and goal setting. And I don't know how this is for you now or whether it's changed from when you started, but do you set goals as a, 
as a competitor? Do you set goals as, as an instructor? Or do you have like a list of things that you want to accomplish in jiu-jitsu, whether those be, you know, win this tournament, you know, grow the school this much, mm-hmm. put out an instructional DVD? Do, do you have things like that? And do you feel tools like that are helpful? Absolutely. Like one of the times I was most active competing was at Brown Belt and I really wanted to get a black belt, you know, so I was like, okay, I'm going to compete as much as I can until I get that thing. And it's not like that's going to be the end of things, but I, I really want to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I always have. So I'm going to like compete as much as I can. And I really benefited from just going out there and just doing a ton of tournaments at Brown Belt. And, um, you know, I, I think that like having goals like that is, is important to shoot for. Uh, for me now, it's just growing my school because, you know, I still want to continue this path that I've been on for a long time, which is making jiu-jitsu my life. And, and now the way to do that is to have a successful academy. And so that's what I want to do. Um, so my goal is to get to 100 students. Um, so it's, you know, a little ways off, but, you know, we're working towards it. And, uh, you know, that's that's my goal. So I think it's important to have that. And if you're a jiu-jitsu competitor, like you should, your ultimate goal should just be like being you know, the most well-rounded, uh, experienced jiu-jitsu practitioner you can be. And it doesn't mean you have to be a world champion, but you should be able to do the tournaments that you can go to and benefit from them and, and learn just, you know, this never ending process of learning jiu-jitsu. So like you need to get out there and get experience and, and get better. So a lot of the people listening to this are people in their 20s that might want to, as you mentioned, make jiu-jitsu their life. And so I'm wondering, uh, what would you, you know, being as someone who's been, uh, you know, who has taken this journey, if there's a, like a 20-something dude or a lady that's like, you know, I want to be on that path to make jiu-jitsu my life, what would you say to like mid-20s Seth about like, hey, dude, do this differently, hey, do this sooner, do this later, that might be helpful advice for people that are in that position now? I think it's, well, I've not had a lot of money for like a long time doing jiu-jitsu. Like when I moved away from Richmond in 2005 and I was working at Lloyd's, like we weren't making hardly any money working at Lloyd's we were working a lot and I, it, it became very stressful. I think sometimes money stress would affect my mental well being and, you know, like my ability, like I would train all the time, but I'd be kind of dirt poor and it would kind of bring me down, like, you know, getting those zero, zero balances, you know, you have a negative balance in your bank account and stuff like that. And I think it would be really helpful to have some kind of income stream while I'm doing jujitsu. Um, and so I know like some people have like remote work from home jobs or IT jobs or something like that. And I, I wouldn't want a job that would like take me away from jujitsu too much. But at the same time, like it would be nice to have some kind of, you know, better income stream. So I think it's like, you know, having having kind of a balanced life, you know, it's like you can throw yourself 100 percent to jujitsu and like live on the mats if that's, you know, that's works for some people, you know, and I, that's great. Like the Meow Brothers are you know, those kind of people and they've, you know, benefited from that lifestyle a lot. And I, you know, I don't think it's for everybody, but I think it's for some people, but I think some people, you know, it's like if you have the means to get some kind of revenue stream coming in while you're doing jujitsu, you know, that, that definitely helps, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think like just, uh, yeah, like it, a lot of people sometimes like want to make jujitsu their life and they're at a academy and they like, aren't really satisfied with that academy, but they feel like they can't leave or something like that. And it's like, if you really want to be like, you know, let's say you want to win the worlds or something like that, then you got to go to one of those academies. I think that like is promoting that. Like, you know, you see like Andre Galvao's got this huge gym with all these people winning all these medals. And it's like, if you want to be a world champion and you live 
in some small, you know, place, like maybe you just need to up and, you know, bite the bullet and get up and do it, you know? Like, I mean, that's, that's what I felt like back in 2005. I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Lloyd's because, you know, I want to, you know, have a little bit more intense training with a lot of like-minded people. And I think, you know, some people just need to get up and do that. You know, it's, they feel like they can't, but it's like, why, why can't you do it? Just get up and do it, you know, figure it out. Like you get in there and you can, you can make those changes to your lifestyle that allow you to do it once you're there. And, you know, all right, I'm gonna ask you a hard question. Okay. Why is mayonnaise so gross? I don't know. It just is. It's, it's, it's like asking white why Prince is cool. beige and it's, after it's been sitting out, it gets this crust on top of it that's like kind of brown. You have to break through it. It's just disgusting and it tastes horrible. It's, the consistency is awful and I hate everything about it. We're going to make that into a bumper and put it uh, in, between, in between interviews now. Uh, okay, harder question. Are, is mayonnaise grosser than sloths are cool or are sloths cooler than mayonnaise is gross? That's difficult. We only ask the hard Ultimately, questions. Ultimately, sloths are probably cooler than mayonnaise. Oh, mayonnaise is really gross, though. Like, I can probably make myself gag thinking about eating a spoonful of it. If you, so saw, cool. if you saw one of the gentle three-toed sloths eating mayonnaise, would you hug that sloth? No. Wow. No. No. No, I would. I, I, I would hug it, but I'd, like, really, like, clean its mouth off. I'd, I would separate it from the mayonnaise. I would clean its mouth off, and it would... Have to deal with that. This mayonnaise, a, and mayonnaise would—I mean, a, a, a mayonnaise, a, a sloth would never eat mayonnaise. So that's one reason I like them. This, this, these are the kind of this is the kind of problem-solving mind that you can expect if you have Seth Smith out as a seminar. And if folks do want to book you, if folks are listening to this and they want to get in touch with you, have you come to to their gym and teach a seminar? How do they get a hold of you? They can email me at sethsmithbjj at gmail, or they can find me on Facebook, or you can just call my academy. Uh, my phone number is 804-972-1892, or you can prank call me, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, te- texts, prank calls, uh, you know, love letters, correspondence, advice, um, uh, sloth sightings, all, all to that number. Uh, so in the few minutes we have left, I'm wondering, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about? Or just anything you feel like is really important for people to know about you or your academy? Uh, my academy is in Richmond, Virginia, and it's called Upstream. And our website is upstreambjj.com. And uh, we love visitors to come through. And we have open mat uh, on Saturdays, which has got no mat fee. And we have um, we have marathon roll on Friday nights, which has become really fun. Uh, and it's just 10 five-minute rounds in a row, and we alternate gi and no gi every week. And uh, it's no mat fee, like I said, and it's it, a lot of people from the Richmond area and, and beyond have come in for marathon roll, and it's become like a fun thing every Friday night and every Saturday during the day for the open mat. So if you're ever in Richmond or you want to come through and stop through and train at our spot, you're more than welcome to, and uh, you know, just come in and get in on the action. And the website is upstreambjj.com? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so check out the website, check out the schedule, get in town and train with Seth. I have one other question that I forgot to, that I wanted to ask about, which is in terms of, and and, uh, and I'm just curious to get your quick take on this, in terms of watching jiu-jitsu, do you watch a lot of competition jiu-jitsu? And if you do, do you have particularly favorite athletes to watch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I like watching so many people. I love watching Bruno Malfacini. I love watching the Mendez brothers. I love watching Marillo Santana, Bruno Frazado, um, Leandro Lowe, of course. Uh, you know, there's so many good people out there. 
Mm-hmm. And do you find that you learn jujitsu watching competition jujitsu, or is it more of a I want to stay in touch with what these competitors are doing, or is it just an enjoyment thing? All three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learn stuff all the time watching it, and I think that's a thing that like uh, people can benefit from a lot. Like beginners, uh, there's so many instructional videos of technique out there, and you're probably probably if you're at a good jujitsu gym, you're probably getting plenty of technique at your academy. You just probably need to spend more time drilling the stuff that you have already learned and just getting more reps of it instead of like always looking at new stuff. But I think there's a lot to benefit from watching matches and just seeing like what their strategy is like how they how they sweep people when they sweep people maybe they have like the grips for their sweep but at a certain point in the match that's when they go for it or you know like their posture when they're trying to get out of like close guard and seeing how you know like what are the what are the top dudes doing when they get caught in close guard they're all standing up there's not that many people who pass on their knees and the ones that do it do it a certain way and you should like watch that and just kind of like learn from that and try to emulate that it's like okay like these guys are all standing up why well there must be something to that maybe i should learn how to stand up and and close guard and then it's like you start standing up in close guard and you start getting swept and it's like oh i shouldn't do this but it's like well these guys are doing it. you should probably like there's you know keep doing it and get swept but then figure out you know how to not get swept and go through the growing pains of it and then like now you have that and you can you know benefit from it so i i don't know i think it's like there's a lot to learn from watching top level people compete and seeing what they do and kind of like analyzing like why do they do this mm-hmm. so i know a lot of the people that are listening are people that went to the seminar yesterday really well willie Rowe received seminar about 37 to 40 people on the mat i'm just wondering do you have any final thoughts for the listeners including some of the folks that attended the seminar um no uh just you know come to my other seminars and uh <laughs> you'll learn some more stuff uh and uh, come by my gym and train with me, you know. Well, Seth, I enjoyed your seminar a lot yesterday. I really enjoyed talking to you on the show. So thanks Same so much here. for coming in. Thanks I appreciate for having it. me. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu gis or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. 24 Lotter Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. So if you want to train with Seth Smith, the website is upstreambjj.com. The academy is in Richmond, Virginia. You can also get in touch with Seth from the contact information that he gave before. We'll also post the link so that you can be sure to get in touch with him if you want to bring him in for a seminar. And we, uh, we being Dirty Wild Bell Radio, are going to post a poll soon this week about what techniques you might want Seth to show on a forthcoming Seth Smith DVD because, boy, I would actually really love to help make that project happen. Um, seminar was outstanding. If you want to go to our website, uh, dirtywhitebelt.com, we'll have pictures up from the seminar. We're also going to have pictures on our Facebook page as well. Just a couple of final thoughts. I want to remind you guys of a couple of quick things that are coming up. On April 6th, uh, I will be leading another yoga night at Cody Malte's gym, Elevate MMA. That is April 6th. That class starts at 6. We're going to do a yoga warm-up. Then we're going to roll a bunch. Then afterwards, we're going to do more yoga. Uh, The last one was really successful. I had a blast, and a bunch of people showed up. So please come on out and show up for that. It'll be fun. We can can train, and we can do some yoga. April 22nd and 23rd, be sure to check out U.S. Grappling at the Europa Games, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Adults go on April 
April 23rd. Kids go, or adults go on April 22nd. Kids go on April 23rd. You also get admission to the Europa Games as a result of your, um, as a result of your admission. It's always uh, good to get out and support U.S. Grappling again. They are our favorite tournament organization for a reason. Most well-run tournaments that I've ever been a part of. I will be there, um, and I, I would love it if you would come by and say hi. So this is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. If you want to get a hold of the show, it's cagesidewhup at gmail.com. You can also get at us on Twitter and Instagram. The Twitter is DWB Radio. The Instagram is Dirty White Belt. Please feel free to post any of those locations with suggestions for future guests, with follow-up questions, with ideas for segments, or with stuff that you want to hear more of and if you like the show please go on itunes or stitcher and leave us a review it really does help a lot so thanks again for listening everybody my name is jeff shaw this is dirty white belt radio and we will see you next sunday